Hey everyone, GPS 220. Uh, we're finishing up the American Pandemic book and moving into our second exam, which will be this Wednesday. Um, so I'll have some remarks uh, at the end of the lecture about that. Uh, trying to think some announcements. Uh, so the exam is Wednesday, and then the, the following Monday when we return, so that would be this November 2nd, um, we'll start the Midnight in Chernobyl book. So just to give you an idea, sorry I'm out of frame for a moment. <laughs> here is that book uh, if you don't have it there are many different editions of this uh, sorry not editions there are many different ways you can get this book so this book is an audio book uh, it's a soft cover it's a hard cover um, but again uh, Midnight in Chernobyl that's what we're moving on to after uh, we finish American Pandemic today your exam will include both American Pandemic and Clearing the Plains um, it'll be a 10 question essay exam just like the last time so format is identical you'll get the same amount of time I know some people kind of got squeezed for time at the end, but, you know, you have all day. Um, I know you, well, let me, let me take that back. I know some of you have classes, of course, and other responsibilities, but um, I'm giving you a lot of time. So if you got to wake up at eight in the morning and, you know, put an hour work into it, then do that and, and come back to it if you can, because you do have um, from eight to six to, to finish that and get that in. Okay, let's get started and kind of round out the book. Uh, we're not going to get to the conclusion today, not because you, you don't, you're not responsible for it, um, but because I want to use the conclusion for uh, an essay that I want you to write later in the semester. There's a, a part of your syllabus that's an in-class essay, and of course, everything is out of class right now. It used to be called an in-class essay, but um, I want you to, to integrate that conclusion when we talk about that, when we do that essay, excuse me. So um, we'll return to that uh, at a later time. But we're going to finish off the book by looking at chapter five today, uh, forgetting and remembering the aftermath. As I said before, the reason we're reading the three books we are reading is, of course, related to COVID, you know, thematically involved with issues of disease and a pandemic and how the government handles this. So, you know, the the Clearing the Plains book and the American Pandemic book are squarely looking at kind of the disease area that we've been discussing. Um, you know, we're talking about influenza or um, uh, the whooping cough or smallpox, right? These are all, you know, pandemics and epidemics that have occurred uh, in clearing the Plains case and involving the, the First Nations Indians or indigenous people and the American pandemic, a historical look at the Spanish flu. When we get to Midnight in Chernobyl, we'll look at how um, a, a disaster, how the government sort of behaves as it pertains to the, the disaster. Um and so, excuse me, let me get that off your screen. Okay. And so each book uh, ties in some way back to the moment that we're living, right? That there's a government response to this, that there's a, a healthcare response to this. And then there's also, and this is what this last chapter is about, how do we talk about this? Like, what's the main storyline? Like, what should we remember when it's all said and done? And that's why this is called forgetting and remembering the aftermath. You know, when it's when this is behind us, and, and I hope soon, sooner than later, we all hope that, right? That COVID is behind us sooner than later. What is it that we remember? Do do we clearly remember the lives lost? I mean, is that the first thing that that pops into our head? You know, by the time this is all said and done, we're going to be well over 300,000 deaths, most likely. All right. And and approaching more. So so we're not we're not in um, Spanish flu territory, uh, but we're we're in the ballpark. 
I mean, we're we're in the stadium somewhere. Okay, maybe we're not in the playing field, but we're somewhere in the stadium. If we're approaching close to, I think now we're, we're approaching two hundred thirty thousand deaths from COVID-related um, illness. Is that the memory? Is it the disruption? Okay, is it the you know you're a college student, so you're doing online schooling? Okay, um, is it the the lost jobs, the lost opportunities? You know, the big trip you had planned that you couldn't go on. Now, I know if we think about, you know, death in relation to that, it, it, it's minuscule, but but these are memories that we'll have, right? No one no one can make you not have the memory that you have. And, and here's a, a very, very silly one. But, you know, w- one of my memories of 9-11 is that I had tickets to a football game that got canceled, okay? And when I think of 9-11, one, one of the memories, it's not the first, it's not the second, it's not the third, it's not the fourth, but one of them was, how it affected sports. I had tickets to a big game and I didn't go to it. Now, again, it doesn't really matter, but it's still a memory. And so this last chapter is about, you know, how did people remember this in the immediate time frame, as we'll see with doctors and nurses, a little further down the road, as we'll see with the artistic community. And then later on, when people were kind of reflecting back on their life, was this a blip or, or not? And and so if we think about, I'm going to go through my, my life with you for just a second. I'm I'll be 39 years old this month. Well, next month, I'll be 39 years old. You know, there are a few key moments in my life that that stick out, that I have memories. The fall of the Berlin Wall when I was nine years old. 9-11 when I was 21 years old. Uh, the Great Recession. And then I think COVID's going to be in there. All right. There's some other memories along the way, but these are some big ones. And so how you remember those events goes a long way to being able to, to tell that narrative and, and, and understand and make sense of it. Um, you know, I wasn't at ground zero at 9-11, but someone who was, right, their memory and their impact of that event is going to be very different than mine who experienced through the power of television. Someone who lost a family member to COVID is going to have a very different kind of memory and experience with this than the person who is simply inconvenienced by going to online schooling. Okay. Both memories are valid. That's the point. That's the point of my stupid football story. Both memories are valid in that they're memories. That's what you remember. Okay. But they may drastically impact how history treats them um, in relation to how, you know, someone specifically might have, you know, gone throughout their day. I remember I did this, and I'll believe me, I'm going to get to the, the the outline in just a second. I remember in Gateway a long time ago, I asked people to um, to call their grandparents if their grandparents were still living or great grandparents, or if their parents were, were were much older to talk to their parents, and ask them where they were when two things happened. Ask them where they were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and where they were when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it's interesting how. In some cases, people had a very sharp memory, a very clear memory of where they were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, but it's fuzzier when Martin Luther King was assassinated. You know, we can we can draw whatever we want to draw from that, but that is uh, an important exercise in helping us to understand why might the Spanish flu have been forgotten? You know, what, what other events were going on at the time? Well, World War I, of course. But as the text tells us, people at the time were, were much more worried about the Spanish flu and what it would do than perhaps even even the, the problems they had during the war. And yet we don't remember it that way now. Okay, so this idea of memory and historical memory is pretty significant here in this last chapter. All right, let's get to actual work. 
optimism about the future, forgetting and remembering the aftermath, would the Spanish flu be the turning point for public health? Um, a big part of this book is understanding the history of public health and the public health infrastructure, putting together um, a group of experts and a group of professionals who would be able to sort these crises out. Would this be the turning point? Inevitably, the flu would present competing narratives, narratives of gains and narratives of tremendous loss. All right. Let's circle back to progressivism for a moment. Let's circle back to progressivism. Progressivism is this historical moment where the bureaucrats, the experts were going to save us. They were going to help us because of their knowledge and their skill set. And people should have their jobs, not because of politics, not because of who's you know, high ends they kissed or anything like that, or who they sucked up to, but because they were the best at the job. And was Spanish influenza, did it, did it quit progressivism? In other words, did it, uh, did it, did it progressivism turn out okay? Or did progressivism or was progressivism put, put squarely in the crosshairs? Did these experts do what they said they're going to do? One of the things that came out of the, the age of progressivism post-Spanish flu is four dimensions. The dimension that further research should be conducted. Secondly, that more organization should be conducted to link all of this public health infrastructure together. Thirdly, that people should be educated. And then fourthly, that people should be mobilized to do the right things. And we'll talk a, a little bit about each of these things as we go through the lecture today. First, let's talk about physicians and the rhetoric of opportunity. There's two ways, well, probably more than two, but here's two broad ways to look at the medical profession and the Spanish flu. One way to look at it is that the doctors failed. Okay. They failed so much that in the last chapter, they were going to all these kind of other mechanisms to try to heal themselves, right? They were, they were engaged in Christian science or they were engaged in homeopathic remedies, or they were going to flat out snake oil salesmen. Um, and then it gave rise to, to these other kind of medical practices like osteopathy and chiropractic that, that like we saw, you know, so would this be the moment where people would say that the experts were, were failures or would the experts be able to effectively convince them that, see, see, we need to know more about this. We need more money for our research to do the right thing. And for the most part, the early 20th, uh, the early 1920s, the medical profession and public health infrastructure was able to convince most of the public that they didn't want another pandemic. And if you didn't want another pandemic, you better trust uh, and fund the experts to do their jobs. And so there's a movement to push for greater funding of this health research. There's interest in publication of their scientific findings in journals like JAMA, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. All right. Very important journal to this day. As one uh, individual pointed out, or actually not individual, as Bristow pointed out, the inadequacy of their knowledge was made visible in the pandemic. So do we call them failures and cut their funding? Or do we say, you've worked really, really hard at this. We want you to figure this out and move money in their direction. We're going through the same uh, uh, discussion right now. All right. Do we need as best we can to funnel every, every amount of money, every opportunity to get some vaccine, some therapeutic, um, or do we sit back and say, gosh, you, you, you guys told us not to wear masks and you told us to wear a mask. And then you said, 
six feet of social distance. And he said, well, it's 15 minutes, but maybe, you know, who, who's, who is to say who's right? Okay. Uh, and I don't believe that, by the way. I mean, I think there's clearly a, a right side and a wrong side. But the point is, is that for the layperson, and I would consider myself a layperson here, for an ordinary individual looking, you know, from the outside looking in, you could make both arguments. Look, we, we put all this emphasis on these medical uh, professionals, on these doctors, and, and what did it get us? And we're going to just give you more money? Or we put all this emphasis and trust in these medical professionals, and we need to continue to trust them by funding their research. Here's the problem. Just like every single political challenge, this is, this is some political science 101 stuff here. Over time, interest would wane. By 1924, JAMA, the, the Journal of the American Medical Association, receives almost no articles on the influenza. They've moved on. You know, want to know something astonishing in the three debates? that Now, I haven't watched every debate moment by moment, blow by blow. But there's been almost not a single question, nary a question, about terrorism. Terrorism dictated our lives, has dictated my life for the last 20 years. And basically no questions, no ads, no uh, money directed to, to anything um, that looks like uh, terrorism uh, uh, advertisements, right? Isn't that fascinating? Because some new challenger came along. Something new came and knocked uh, terrorism off the pedestal. And that thing is COVID. I'd be very surprised if in 2024, gosh, I say this and I hope I'm right, but I'd be very surprised in 2024 if COVID is the thing that's leading the way on the next presidential election. The midterms of 2022, it still could be a thing. But have we circled back to terrorism? Is there new, some new issue all right, that we're going to have to be dealing with? Let's take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about organization of the public health infrastructure. Let's go down to point number four, more careful and complete organization. All right, connecting public health organizations together. So one of the things that we discussed, gosh, two or three chapters now, uh, two or three chapters ago now, I should say, is that many of our first like public health boards um, begin to pop up throughout the country. So there, there might have been a North Carolina Board of Health and a Tennessee Board of Health and a Georgia Board of Health. The thing was, is they didn't necessarily talk to one another. So what was happening in North Carolina may have not been known to someone in Tennessee or someone in Virginia. And as we know, and we saw this clearly with the virus, you know, people don't just stay in one place. The boundaries of North Carolina are, are just that. They're, they're boundaries, but they don't really keep anyone in or keep anyone out. So if there's a flare-up or an outbreak in South Carolina and a bunch of people that live in North Carolina that were in South Carolina were exposed and they go, you know, how do these agencies kind of talk to one another? So one of the big tasks uh, post pandemic is how can these agencies begin to talk to one another? How can the county level, local level agencies talk to the state? How can the state officials talk to federal officials? And how can state officials talk to one another? Secondly, they focused a great deal of attention on both health professionals, but also the habits of Americans. You know, all the social distancing stuff, all of the washing of hands, um, all of the mask wearing, this is effectively about 
controlling what we do. All right. Um, so in other words, you know, someone at Big Pharma, right, can create the vaccine that uh, that in, at the end of the day is, is going to be the game changer or someone that the, the pharmacy can can figure out that the pharmaceutical company can figure out the therapeutic that if we do get COVID, we can go to the CVS or to the Rite Aid or the Walgreens and get get our medicine and be OK. All right. Um, what they can't do right, what those therapeutics and what that vaccine can't do is control our own behavior. You know, even pre-COVID, and I've, and I've tried to tell people this and people seem to forget, you know, schools have had to close because of major outbreaks of a certain illness. I mean, um, you know, there's, there are particularly rough flu seasons, as we know, that, that schools do have to, to make, to have mitigating factors. Now, in that case, the school board might, not school board, excuse me, the, the health department might step in and say, look, we got to close this particular school because there's a major flare-up of the flu here. I remember about five or six years ago, there was an episode, and I think in two elementary schools of... Uh, the measles. There was a measles outbreak at a couple of elementary schools and the health department had to come in. All right. But how do we mitigate those factors among among us? Well, we encourage people to wash hands. We encourage people if they're sick not to go out. These things have happened on Wingate's campus before. You know, there's a particular bad stomach bug that goes around and we have to tell students not, you know, don't be in contact with another. Frequently wash your hands. Um, if you have to cough or sneeze, you know, cover your, uh, cover your mouth. These are things that um, are now seemingly common sense, but there had to be an organizational approach to it. So on the one hand, of course, there was a an attentiveness to the health professionals themselves and their needs, but also just the everyday American. What do they need to know in order to combat a uh, particular illness? So in the case of the early 1900s, that was, you know, uh, regimented hygiene, you know, spitting, to be careful about spitting, covering your mouth when coughing and all that. Uh, thirdly, the best opportunity to get, to, to get Americans to support such movement, all right? Um, having good organizational skills uh, was the best opportunity at that moment to get people to support it. They had just come through a pandemic. They didn't want to go back to a pandemic. And so this was the moment in time to say, hey, you don't want to go back there again, do you? So here are the things that we need to do. This is, uh, will be interesting to see going forward. There is, um, on the one hand, a great deal of skepticism about mask wearing from a segment of the population. But on the other hand, a lot of people have accepted it if it allows them to go on and lead a semi-normal life. All right. Look, if you're going to allow me to go into the restaurant and all I have to do is wear a mask when I enter, then I, and I want to go to a restaurant, then, then okay, I'll do that. I want to go really go see a movie. All right. Movie theaters have been closed. I really want to see a movie now. I got to wear a mask the whole time. Okay, but I, I want to see the movie right? So these are, this is the moment. Uh, maybe the moment's not there yet. Maybe in six months or a year from now is the moment to where, you know, if we have to face another pandemic, okay, what are the things we can tell Americans people now to best be prepared for it? All right. You know, will, will we, this, as this is true in, in many uh, South Asian countries, will we have a culture now that is predisposed to mask wearing if there's the hint of illness? Or, or will, you know, let's say 60 and above, or five years and below, will mask wearing be something that uh, will become part of the culture? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, but perhaps uh, we could see going forward that that would be the moment. Uh, just like we could never imagine a moment where, you know, we'd give the government immense, you know, uh, spying power 
But after 9-11, we gave the government an immense amount of power called the Patriot Act that we would have never maybe have thought of before. Okay, so they, they thought that the, what's the expression, strike while the iron's hot? That's what we have here. Who of all groups, as we've said before, uh, got off looking pretty good in all this? Nurses. The aftermath of the Spanish influenza was a huge boon to the industry of nursing, all right? Um, and the professionalization of that career. No longer was it simply about, or no longer would it be simply about providing comfort. Nurses would have genuine medical knowledge and skills. Without nurses, so says this book, and so says a lot of history, the Spanish influenza could have been an incredibly, incredibly more potent problem than it already was, right? Than it already was. Nurses are the group that came out of the Spanish flu with the greatest influence of all medical professionals, more so than the public health boards, more so than medical doctors. As our book says, nurses, nurses, and more nurses. At the end of this lecture, I want to stress again the idea of narratives and competing narratives. When it's all said and done, what will we say about COVID? Will we say it was a political failure? Will we say it was a failure of the American people themselves not to be able to, to, to do what they're supposed to do? Will, will, will we say it's a, uh, an infiltration by a foreign agent, so to speak? Will we blame this on globalization or could we blame it on nationalism? All right. What will be the major narratives? And the same was true to some extent with the Spanish flu. On the one hand, one of the major narratives that came out of the Spanish flu was continued optimism in the direction of public health, that we need to listen to public health officials uh, if this were to happen again. And if we don't, if we ignore them, we ignore them at uh, our peril. So this is kind of interesting, I think, because um, we certainly have people right now that have ignored public health professionals. And, and we also know that there has been skepticism posed at some of our uh, public health administration. All right, both in Washington and at the state level. There's also been a considerable amount of pessim pessimism surrounding the carnage of the Spanish flu. You know, yeah, maybe maybe there's optimism about, um, you know, that the future is bright. But if you if you suffered loss, okay, then then your memories of the Spanish flu are going to be considerably different. You know, I think for so many Americans. The hope is we'll get to a point, COVID will be behind us, and we'll go and live our lives normally again. There is no normal life for the person that loses their mother to COVID. There is no normal life to the person that might have lost both parents, as was the case locally, to COVID. There isn't a normal life after that, okay? So, so there is a, a great deal of seriousness that we have to treat what is coming next. And what is coming next is that a lot of us will be much less inconvenienced, okay? And we'll, we'll appreciate that lack of inconvenience. There are going to be 300,000 widows, and uh, I'm not saying literally 300,000. I'm saying, you know, there are going to be 300,000 people that, that lost parents, that, uh, that lost spouses, that lost sons and daughters, okay? They are going to have to deal with this in a way that those of us that have simply been inconvenienced by it, have not. Think of all the first responders that have lost their lives to COVID at this point, the police officers, the firefighters, the, um, the, uh, the, the ambulance drivers, okay, 
Um, think of the nurses and the doctors who have succumbed to it now by constant exposure to the disease. There's a, a real legacy there um, that we'll have to reckon with when this is all said and done. This greatly influenced political discussions. Many soured on the progressive era. Uh, the progressive era was giving reins to the experts. The experts were going to solve this, and, and there was some, some pessimism surrounding that. One of the most fascinating things about this book, and I'll have to go, I'm going to go back and look at the index just to double check what I'm about to say. Um, okay, I was wrong. He's mentioned once. There is almost no discussion in this text of Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time. Why is there no discussion of Woodrow Wilson? He was the president. He was the leader. What was he doing? Okay, now. What we could say is, is that she, this is this is not a book that she wanted to write about the, the highest levels of the political administration. All right. But certainly when people write the book about COVID, you're going to write a couple chapters on Donald Trump. All right. Depending on what state you're in, you're going to write a couple chapters on the governor and how, how the health officials treated it. Um, there is without a doubt political dimensions to this. And we know that by the level of restrictions in some some states versus others. We know that in the level of seriousness that some political leaders have taken this versus others. We know that in the, the solutions that some political leaders have posed compared to other solutions or different competing solutions, we might call them. As is the case with many crises, music, poetry, and literature um, have offered remembrances of the era. As you know, I'm a big music person. So the fact that there are all these blues uh, songs about the Spanish influenza is really, really remarkable. Uh, poetry, literature, uh, commemorating these things that happened, uh, that had a, indeed a lasting effect. And also, and this is what I want to close with, what we call oral history as well. If you could turn to page 185 and 186, I just want to read about how people remember this. And this is, uh, you know, going back to asking someone where they were when 9-11 when happened or when Kennedy was shot or when Martin Luther King was shot. You know, it, it tells us a lot about how, how memory effectively works um, and also what people deem to be important. Uh, and I've asked my, you know, my, my parents and my grandparents these types of questions as well. Like, you know, when, when you were going through this, what did you think? Was this just normal? Is this just something that you did? All right. Or was it really, truly um, shocking? Okay. All right. Page 185 and 186. We're at the bottom of page 185. It's the third paragraph. As the works of Porter and Maxwell make clear, Americans often remembered the pandemic and its costs, an important counterpoint to the nation's collective memory. Indeed, according to William Maxwell, his memories grew much more vivid as he aged. As he suggested in an interview in 1995, everything that ever happened to me is there. Memories of the pandemic, of course, were never the province only of writers who intentionally shared their stories with a broad readership. In the 1970s, World War I veterans completed questionnaires as part of a research project on soldiers' experiences conducted by the United States Army Military History Institute and their responses to questions about health and health care during the war recalled again and again the epidemic and its consequences. Flu was extremely bad. Hundreds of our men died of flu, recalled one. Many never got over it and died. The deaths were unbelievable. Still others remembered the deaths more vividly. 
I can to this day see the cords of bodies stacked in the base hospital. Cords, by the way, is if you've ever seen like lumber stacked, that's a cord. So bodies on top of bodies on top of bodies going up in height. They were dying faster than the bodies could be taken care of, remembered Merle Swanter. Or as Private Orville Holman remembered, when the influenza hit, all men got sick. A man who worked in the morgue said that bodies were stacked as high as your head, 700 in there at one time. As one soldier from Fort Custer in Michigan explained simply, it was awful. More than half a century after the pandemic, these veterans were called effortlessly the scourge the pandemic had proven. Don't want to be cliche with you. Don't want to be like the your, you know, your old professor now, but I'm going to say something that's going to, I hope rings true. And I think it rings true and it, it, and it, it will ring true. Yeah. 50, 60 years from now, you're going to be, you know, part of the history of COVID. All right. You're, you're what they call the Zoomers. Okay. This generation who have lived this experience of, of online education and really online everything at this point. Um, you will go into a job market where working online, working from home will be in greater need um, due to, you know, cost of space, but also concerns about future pandemics. What will your memories be like? Okay. Will your memories be those of mild inconvenience or could it be something much, much worse? Um, And in the case of these soldiers, now look, these are soldiers that went to fight in war and their vivid memories of the disease perhaps even outweighs uh, the terrible things they saw on the battlefield. And I think that speaks to the seriousness and the trauma that the Spanish influenza wrought. Test on Wednesday. All right. Test on Wednesday. Um, it'll be released at 8 a.m. You'll have until 6 p.m. to finish it. Uh, please don't uh, rush through it. Take the time that you need, but don't, don't start it at 5.15 and try to get done by 6, all right? I don't want all those 6.03, 6.04 emails that I get, all right? Telling me what's happened. Just do your work, get it done. You can use any any um, of the book uh, books. You can use all your notes. All I ask you to do is please do not consult with a classmate uh, in regards to your exam, all right? Good luck, and I'll see you all again on next Monday.